Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. My name is Andy Mink, and I'm the Vice President for Education Programs here at the Center and your host for this episode. Um, Since the early modern era, the field of history has been widely understood as the study of things that have happened involving humans. What if we approached history on a much larger scale, for instance, against the backdrop of geological or even cosmological time? Today, we're talking to David Christian, professor of history and director of the Big History Institute at Macquarie University. In 2004, Professor Christian published the first monograph in Big History and has been instrumental in development of a multidisciplinary approach to history that combines knowledge from fields as seemingly disparate as cosmology, biology, and anthropology. Christian was also a fellow at the center in the spring of 2007, and he returned recently to discuss the ways big history is changing the way we think about and teach students about the past. So David, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Um, You know, it's funny, I, I happened to take a look at your TED Talk, just the landing page, and I saw as of this morning you had seven million one hundred and sixteen thousand plus hits. So I feel like yeah. I feel like I'm one of many asking these questions, but but maybe the first even uh, as well. And I suppose for the audience, the, the audience that might be other scholars, they might be scholars from different humanist fields, might be teachers, educators, even students. I, w- I would imagine that one of your goals and challenges becomes just defining, just explaining to us what what is big history what does that mean I mean I think the quickest way of defining it is simply to say that big history tries to embed human history in the history of the universe so it embeds it in the history of the biosphere planet earth and of the solar system and the universe as a whole and the end result of doing that is the you end up with something that looks like a modern science-based version of a traditional origin story. I mean, traditional origin stories told stories that unified everything. They brought together all of a society's knowledge about fundamentals, how the earth was created, how people were created. Uh, the Christian story did that in Newton's world. So Newton lived in a world shaped by a unifying origin story. And then in, in the 19th century, faith in those stories was profoundly eroded. I suspect one reason was just that globalization meant that it became impossible to ignore the fact that there were many origin stories and they said different things. So I think of big history as a kind of teasing out an emerging modern origin story that's based on, you know, a century and a half, two centuries of rich scholarly research in the sciences and the humanities. When you see that intersection occur between scientific modes of inquiry between humanistic work. Sometimes it's, it's uh, tempting to consider those as very different, as we've suggested, disparate fields. Not only how do you find the commonalities, but how do each of those fields respond to what you're suggesting? And, and do, do scientists respond differently than humanists or vice versa? Yeah. Scientists, by and large, I think, find the idea of big history much easier to swallow than scholars in the humanities. And I think it's partly because the natural sciences have a tradition of big unifying stories. So the physicists talked for decades about you know, grand unified theories, and that was not a ridiculous idea in, in physics, because you had, you had Newton, you had Einstein, you had quantum physics. The problem was that they didn't quite work, so everyone was looking for those unifying theories. In the humanities, it's as if the process of fragmentation meant that the very idea of a story that would unify the whole of humanity sort of got lost uh, in the mix. And in fact, if you look at historical scholarship today, you you began by saying it's about, it studies humans. Well, 
I, I disagree with you. It studies modern humans. You, you look at the research overwhelmingly. It's about the last two or three centuries of human history. And those last two centuries are not typical of human history as a whole. So to generalize from what happened in the last few centuries is to tell us something about the world we live in right now. It's not to tell us anything about the world of human history as a whole, I think. So, so the humanities became much more fragmented and the idea of a unifying paradigm vision is, is an idea that many actually find horrifying in the humanities because they fear that it will block off multiple stories. And I think many scholars in the humanities actually revel in the multiplicity of stories that you can tell about humans. I think it's possible to do both, to revel in the multiplicity of stories, but also to ask the question, is there nevertheless an underlying unity? And we know there must be. There must be, because we know that genetically we humans are fantastically homogenous. We know that we're all descended from a common ancestor. So just as the, you can talk about a unified trajectory for a nation, in the same way you can talk about a unified trajectory for human beings. It began about 250,000 years ago. And we don't have all the pieces, but we have a lot of the pieces mm -hmm. to describe that story. And it sounds like the story you're, you're describing, at least, is also a story of scale and scope. It's the ability to for lack of a better term, sort of zoom in and out yes, and see a, see a nested relationship between these absolutely. things. So if that's the case, then what in your view, if the conception of these, these ideas is about 25, 30 years old in your own work at least, what would you say, what would you point at as the reason why 25 or 30 years ago you were able to start to make these connections? Was there any kind of epiphany or any kind of moment or any kind of uh, toggle switch that allowed you to start to see things in this way and then of course once you see them you can't unsee them. I mean I think I was always a science yeah. nerd so you know I always always read science so I was always aware of the fact that in the natural sciences there are unifying paradigms, Kuhnian paradigms, you know, natural selection, Big Bang cosmology and so the question why is there apparently not such a paradigm in human history always fascinated me. And you know, now I, I increasingly suspect there may be a paradigm, but right. but the other thing is that I think as a look, I'm a historian of Russia, which meant that I read a lot of Marx when I was younger. Now Marx was doing big history. And it not just Marx, Hegel was, Spencer was, Kant was, a lot of very influential mid-nineteenth century scholars was still looking for a unifying story of some kind, but they were looking for a scientific unified story. Now, I would say in retrospect, it was impossible, and they, they came up with versions that don't work in retrospect, mm -hmm. because modern science was still in its infancy mm -hmm. in many ways, but now I think it is so mature that we can tell this story of the universe with a detail and precision and rigor that allow us to tell a coherent story that, that begins with the Big Bang and ends now. H.G. Wells tried to do it in the 1920s. Couldn't really do it, and I think the reason is because the science had not kicked in. We did not know about Big Bang cosmology, plate tectonics, a lot of the, the biology was still Darwinian. We didn't even have dates. All the dates on which big history relies, most of them have kicked in since the 1950s, since the radiometric revolution, since we discovered a whole series of new gadgets for dating events for which we have no written records. Right. I think in some ways this conversation, for me at least, is, is starting to steer a little bit away from 
big history, and it's going to maybe focus more on big historian, the work as a fellow, the work in your own career. And so I hear you describe what you are describing, and I wonder if there's an ability to visualize what you're describing now that does map loosely, at least, on the digital landscape. And so my question, I think, is how has technology, as that accelerant, technology as a tool, as a device, as a delivery system, as a way to communicate, to me, it's not a coincidence that you're mapping onto the digital information age as well. Have you seen technology allow us to show the trends that you can intuitively see in a more sophisticated way? Uh, you know, one very simple answer is that um, for someone trained as a historian with a sort of amateur's interest in science, to try to put together a story like this would have been much, much harder if I couldn't use the kind of research tools mm -hmm. of the internet. You mm -hmm. know, so I, if I if I want to check, you know, on the frequency of red light, you know, it'll right. take me a few seconds. It, rather than the trip to the library and digging out a textbook on physics, that may be important. But I also have this hunch, and it's no, I mean, there's a lot of people moving in this direction. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of scientists mm -hmm. have already been there, and they wonder why the historians, you know, seem to be looking at such a small patch of reality. Or the p people in the humanities, and they're, they're very often puzzled by the yeah. lack of sort of big generalizing right. ideas in the humanities. So I think there's lots of people who instinctively look for big patterns. Uh, the way the history profession has evolved in particular, maybe some of the other humanities disciplines, make them very attractive mm -hmm. to those who find the vivid detail numinous, mm -hmm. satisfying, and full of meaning. Uh, so this is a matter of the cast of mind. I think I was what I call a framework learner. Mm -hmm. I needed a big framework before I could really make sense of things. So I was looking for a framework, and that may mean that I was asking questions that are unusual for most historians. But I was also very influenced by the French historians, such as Brodel. I'd read a lot of Marx as a Russian historian. Marx thought big. He thought about right. the history of humanity. So I was always attracted to historians who were interested in what happens if you widen the scale mm -hmm. and try to look at history at multiple scales. As an educator, as a teacher, you know, I'm also thinking of this in pedagogical terms. And so what you're describing is intellectually stimulating, but how in the world do you visualize this for younger students, really any age? And personally, I was actually first introduced to many of these concepts through some work on a project that Microsoft Research funded called ChronoZoom, which is a... I know ChronoZoom. Yeah, uh, ChronoZoom. Very well. That's exactly right. So I worked uh, closely worked with... I did, with uh, Roy Zimmerman and Walter Alvarez at UC Berkeley. And they called us when I was at University of North Carolina, and we developed some instructional materials around how do you use this sort of visualizing timeline tool to help younger students just to start to see the relationship. That leads, I think, to this question, which is... You know, how, how do you, I'd say you in the plural sense now, how, how do we, how do you describe and allow students who don't necessarily harness all of this sort of experience and training and the, the things that you see intuitively, how, how do you take baby steps in, in helping younger students make those connections? It's really hard, but I think, I think geology educators mm -hmm. yep. have a lot of familiarity with the problem. Our minds are not designed by natural selection mm -hmm. to deal with time scales exactly. more than more than a few decades. So I, I suspect anyone who tells you they really do know what a million years means is, is life. But geologists get used to dealing with those time scales so that they don't blur the difference between a million and a billion, for example, which if you're not familiar 
with them you do. So you get used to dealing with time scales, and partly it's a matter of just coming back and back and back to different dates. Which so is, I've always used timelines. Which is one skill that the traditional historical inquiry art does not necessarily address. We use human scale, which exactly. is days and years I, I would and say it's the biographical scale. I, see, yeah. I mean, one lovely way of doing this is to, and this is a question about understanding, but also about empathy. So to think of circles of understanding and mm -hmm. circles of empathy, and every kid understands this. Mm -hmm. So you you know you as an individual you defend yourself, you know. But then there's your family, then there's you know your your school, then there's mm -hmm. maybe your cultural community, and then there's maybe your nation. How far can we go along this track? Well, you could go to humanity, but that's a circle of understanding and empathy that is extremely developmentally. That developmentally, it comes yeah. much later. You know, early age, it's uh, far yeah. far away, long ago. That's what they yeah. struggle with. Yeah, and it's not developed educationally. Right. You know, right. educators yeah. don't help it. But then there's more than that. You know, there's there's a sense of I belong to a universe. I'm part of a universe. Mm -hmm. In any traditional origin story, you can actually identify all of those circles of understanding and empathy. But we don't normally educate people like that. So, so that's often a helpful way. And different circles operate at different scales. You know, the universal one operates at the scale of 13 billion. I find one very simple trick for helping students get a sense of the shape of the chronological story is simply to divide all the dates by a billion. Mm. You know, if you divide the history of the universe by a billion, then the universe began 13.8 years ago. Now, every high school kid can sort of understand sure. 13 years. And then you recalculate all the dates. I mean, this is a very familiar story. Yeah. Carl Sagan did, did right. an equivalent of this. And then you, you, you find that humans visited the moon one second ago. And that can give you a sense of the shape of the story. So that's one way of doing it. Chronozoom was a very interesting attempt to help people. My suspicion is the problem with electronic ways allow it to zoom and unzoom is it's too easy because it's like if you fly across the US you have no idea of how big it is and and I think the same thing is you can zoom from 13.8 billion years in chronozoom down to 200,000 years and you can do it in about two two or three seconds mm -hmm. so by the end you have no sense of the right. work of how many lines you've crossed right in some ways it does blur the scale that you're yeah. trying to, to yeah. underline so I think just Repetition, just yeah. getting used to this. Right. And in fact, one of the virtues of thinking about big history as, as an origin story is it reminds you of a very different style of education. Mm -hmm. If you think of, again, Newton's world, so someone who is born into a world where there is a taken-for-granted unifying story, and Newton's world, that was a combination of science and Christian theology, and you learn something about that world when you're a kid. When you're three, you know, you, you learn a crude image of that. And then what happens during your educational career is you circle round and round and round that story, mm -hmm. seeing it in greater and greater depth. Well, we live in such a fragmented educational environment that we have this idea of education as ticking the boxes. You know, I've done Economics 101, let's put that aside, now let's do something else, and now let's do something else. And you never go back to the other stuff. So the sense of a unifying story that you can get familiar with at deeper and deeper levels, right. something embedded in the origin stories. Right. That gets us away from destination education. Yes. Or we're just trying to reach some boxes you suggest yeah. and, and move on. Yeah. In a couple of the talks I've heard you give, including the one you shared with us today at lunch, I heard you use the phrase today, in fact, multiple times, if I'm right, yeah. dot, dot, dot. <laughs> How are you going to know when you're right? 
Yeah, one of the fascinating things about, about big history yeah. is that it raises epistemological questions in a very clear and sharp way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we begin with this completely outrageous statement that there was a time in which every bit of energy and matter in the universe was squashed into something smaller than that. And we expect students to understand that. So the question, why should someone believe this, becomes really strategic. So it raises sharp epistemological questions. When I began teaching it, a friend very helpfully said, you're going to need to help students move from the sciences to the humanities, and that means different rules about evidence, different ideas of truth. So I, I, I spent quite a lot of time talking about epistemology. And what I realized is that a lot of students, they have a sort of simple epistemology. And, and in fact, I think most of us do when our brains are not, <laughs> not fully working, which has two positions. And one position is, this is right, and the rest is garbage. That would imply that the story I'm telling in big history is right and all earlier origin stories were garbage. I don't want to tell that. I don't want to give that because I don't actually believe it's true. I know perfectly well in a hundred years' time a lot of the stuff I say in big history is going to be tweaked and changed. Mm -hmm. So then you say, yeah, but we're not 100% sure this is true. Then a lot of students move to the other default position, which is the extreme postmodernism. They're all sure. stories. The difficult thing is that a good and sophisticated epistemology is in a much more difficult middle, swampy middle ground, where there is no absolute truth, there's never absolute truth, nothing can be absolutely guaranteed, but on the other hand it's not just stories. And I think biology is helpful here because we know that living organisms have to get a grip on their environment, even bacteria, in order to survive. The, the bacterium that is not equipped to run away from extreme acidity or whatever it is, is not going to survive and not going to pass on its genes. So the ones that passed on their genes are the bacteria that had some grip on the real world. Now that's the same with us. I mean, our maps of the world are vastly more sophisticated, but the most we can claim for them is that they have enough of a grip on the real world for us to survive most of the time. Minus circumstances. Minus circumstances. Right. There's no guarantee that right. we won't get it radically wrong because right. eventually there are mass extinctions and right. individuals die. So maneuvering people to that interesting epistemological position where you know that as an individual you have only a small number of pieces of a jigsaw with gazillions of pieces you hope that from those few pieces you can actually detect patterns which have some relationship to the All you want world. is the box top at that point. You yeah. don't need all the puzzle pieces, but you just want to see You're never going to get the box top. That's right. That's, we, we, that's we what we're looking for. You right? need a brain as big as the universe yeah, that's to, exactly to, right. to deal with it. These are, this is clearly a conversation uh, that, is, that is broad and deep. For those in our audience who are interested in more information about big history, both as a concept and your own work, do you have some resources you'd like to recommend or just a couple of like quick go-tos? This is where to start if yes, you want to explore Yes, this. there are now, unlike 20 years ago, there are quite a lot of resources. It's a very small field, so a small number of people dominate them. <laughs> and, and I'm afraid I'm one of them, but yeah. the 18-minute introduction is probably my, my TED talk, mm -hmm. uh, which, which gives a sense of the arc of the story. There is a McGraw-Hill textbook, mm -hmm. uh, standard 
first year university textbook, Introduction to Big History, called Big History Between Nothing and Everything. Mm -hmm. I've written a, a sort of fatter and heftier book called Maps of Time. And it's fatter and heftier and has lots of footnotes because I was really trying to prove that this is a, you know, you, this is a story you can tell with some scholarly rigor. There are at least two MOOCs mm -hmm. in big history, one from my own university, Macquarie University. They're completely free online courses that'll give you a sort of more detailed overview. And they, they include, I lecture in ours, but also we cut to scholars talking about their take on Big Bang cosmology or natural selection or whatever it is. Um, there is a, an online course in the teaching company and, and the, the finally, and one of the most useful resources is the Big History Project. Mm -hmm. And you can find it just by Googling Big History Project. And that was funded by Bill Gates and it's a, it's a complete online syllabus in Big History, now with a lot of material for high school students. And that is now being taught in over a thousand schools in the US and uh, over a hundred in Australia. Very rich resource, free, anyone can sign up to it and, and use those materials. There are books by my colleagues Fred Spear, Cynthia Brown, there's an emerging literature, there's a scholarly website, the International Big History Association has a website and that lists resources. So there now are quite a lot of resources. Good. Lots of good places to go. David, I want to thank you for joining us in this podcast. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.